from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer who blends transgressive elements into a potent blend of neo-gothic. She's joining me today to talk about her new collection of short stories entitled Ending in Ashes. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Rebecca Jones Howe. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Vincent. Thanks for the invitation and thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining me on the 16th day of August 2023. I had been following you on social media for a while and saw that you were about to release a short story collection entitled Ending in Ashes. I checked it out and was immediately drawn in by the dark erotic stories that put emotion, death, sex, and existential angst on full display in a poetic literary flow that I enjoyed from beginning to end. So thank you for the art you create and thank you for being on the show today. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's just so nice to, you know, hear kind words on my <laughs> writing. So I'm excited to talk about it. Absolutely. Well, so... I read that you initially started writing transgressive fiction, what you referred to as, quote, dark stories with a feminist edge. And a lot of those stories ended up in a collection entitled Vile Men. And while querying a yet unpublished work, you said that multiple literary agents considered that particular work gothic. So from transgressive fiction and vile men, to a work that agents considered gothic, to present day and ending in ashes, what genre do you consider the stories to be, and what life events guided the evolution of the genre of these three books? So I started writing what my editor at the time, Richard Thomas, he called it neo-noir. Mm -hmm. So it's literary fiction that technically borrows pieces from other genres. So it could be horror or noir itself or science fiction. So going from what was originally transgressive fiction, I started writing kind of based off Chuck Palahniuk's work. So it's very minimalist. Moving into gothic, I've always kind of been into gothic fiction. And just having gone from my first collection into the novel, 
which it was, I would still call it minimalism. It was originally a thriller. And then just kind of in the process of writing that, I used a lot of kind of gothic tropes. And then after that novel got, it got rejected. I had to take a break from it. Mm. Then I just moved straight into gothic fiction, just based off of a short story called, it was Woman of the White Cottage, the story in Ending in Ashes. So that was my first kind of like, quote unquote, gothic story. Mm. And then I just kind of wrote more from there. Yeah. Yeah, kind of a side note, I love minimalism in all forms, whether it's living area, architecture, painting, just any kind of art, anything like that, especially writing. And I've noticed in your pictures, specifically the ones you like to do with those outfits, which yeah. I want to ask you about those later, yeah. but <laughs> just to kind of reference those as not exactly minimalist, is writing kind of the only area you practice a minimalist approach in or does it affect other aspects of your life i really liked minimalism like you know mid-century modern kind of style mm. mostly for home decor i loved Mad Men, so i just loved the sets and stuff in there yeah my house i wanted it to be minimalist but i'm just not i'd have too much clutter and all that <laughs> kind of stuff i guess in the last year or so i got more into maximalist fashion so mm. i'm a big kind of fashion girl i love clothes and so it's just having seen other people have maximalist outfits online, I just kind of like just put more gaudy stuff, jewelry and things <laughs> like that, embellishments. I still like minimalist prose myself, but uh -huh. especially once I slipped into the more the gothic stories, it was I could add a little bit more detail and stuff like that. But okay. fiction wise, I still prefer the kind of shorter sentences, like leaning more on letting the words kind of drive the narrative and let the reader kind of decipher what's in there as opposed mm -hmm. to just, you know, just explaining everything and verbose and having giant long paragraphs and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm minimalist in most things, but I've got to read hard copies of books. So I guess it's not exactly minimalist having big bookshelves cluttered with books. Yeah. <laughs> If I was a minimalist, I would just go everything digital, I guess. But yeah, yeah, I was just curious to know if like there's particular areas where you're minimalist and then, you know, others obviously not. So, yeah, I feel like my energy, it's a little bit chaotic, but I try to pretend that I'm organized. So like my bookshelf <laughs> is, I like like all the books to be straight and sit at the same spot, but I organize it by color just because it looks more visually interesting. So yeah. like, yeah, there's like a chaos to the organization, I guess. Yeah. You don't do the uh, heights, do you? No, I just like whatever colors like fit in the palette because it's okay. like they have to flow into each other, but it also has to be the line. So are you talking yeah. about using a color wheel? Like, isn't um, that what it's called? The color I, wheel? Yeah. Like I used to work at Winner's Home Sense, which is like TJ Maxx mm -hmm. in the States, but the towels, like certain things were always organized by color. So I just still use that color organization <laughs> system, like in my closet and everything. Yeah. Nice. Well, in the first story, the Red House, the ending is really disturbing because of the character of Uncle David's behavior and his actions being so out of sync. Yeah. And without giving away the ending, did his emotional state of mind exist because he thought he was doing the right thing and had erroneously good intentions? 
And can you kind of expand on his perception of reality? And was he just kind of erroneously thinking he was doing the right thing? I guess like that whole story is just I really love looking at things from a POV that isn't mine. Mm -hmm. So while the main character is a woman who's kind of seeking refuge at her uncle's house during the COVID pandemic from an abusive spouse. So basically in this story, like Uncle David, he was a divorced man who's also lost his ex-wife. And just from that perspective, I like to think him being an older person, he would have had some life experience, some regrets and things that he wishes he could change. So I think in the beginning of the story, he's trying to help her out, like give her refuge. But as things go later on, like, I kind of see his point of view as a little bit immature. Mm -hmm. So I think he has the this, this same kind of things he wants to achieve or the same motives throughout the whole story. But come the ending, they do get a little swayed. Yeah. Just because he sides more with, you know, the male side of the relationship as opposed to the female one. And ultimately, mm -hmm. what he wanted in his marriage, he didn't get. And mm. so he's just hoping to fix another person's marriage, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's a brief amount of time in that story where he just seems like an honorable guy, but he's not. <laughs> yeah. It's just weird how it ends up being so out of sync is what kind of disturbed me. I was like, wait a minute, what is this guy doing? Jesus. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he's like a lawyer, too. So he kind of comes off as a little bit cold and stuff like that. So those little moments in the story where he does you know, make himself a little bit vulnerable or tries to, you know, show love through acts of service or something like that. Yeah. It does make you think like, oh, you know, he's genuine. Like he's definitely just a little like social anxiety or something like yeah. that, but he's trying. And then, you know, by the end, <laughs> just... <laughs> it isn't so. <laughs> well, the next story, Hostages, was very surreal. It seemed like the protagonist of the story named Aaron had survivor's guilt and was recklessly trying to reconcile with the object of her guilt. Was her guilt causing her to give in to self-destruction or had she lost touch with reality or have I lost touch with the actual tenor and meaning of this story? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that one's a little bit of both because she has survivor's guilt and has had it, you know, ever since, you know, the incident, the shooting incident where, mm -hmm. you know, the guy who tried to save her ended up getting hit with a bullet and then she doesn't know what happens to him after that. So it's almost like discovering that he lived, you know, she has this, I guess, reclamation sort of moment where she can kind of reclaim the incident and, you know, she starts having a relationship with him, an affair, mm. on a vacation. It's just like, I guess there's a sort of surreal element to that. And mm. then the story gets surreal on its own. So there is that sort of question of reality to it. And even when I was writing it, like, I didn't really know kind of where it was supposed to go. But it basically is a story just about an affair. Mm. And I think affairs technically in a lot of cases are very self-destructive and so she does kind of get self-destructive herself and kind of get sucked into his way of thinking because they both have like post-traumatic stress disorder from the incident and they're handling it in different ways mm. yeah when you're writing things that surreal i mean do you ever get to the point where you kind of lose track of 
how do I describe this? Like from my perspective, it would get very meta. Like you're examining the way a person would feel when she's trying to imagine the way another person would feel who is feeling or, you know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. do you ever kind of lose track of like the point of view and your own perception when you're writing things that are that surreal? Oh, yeah, totally. I love meta commentary and stuff. And mm. I guess I never really thought about the process itself being meta because I'm trying to see things from multiple character points of view as I'm writing it. Like in the process of writing Ending in Ashes, I've kind of like, you know, perfected my storytelling a little bit. So I do use Scrivener. A lot of the time I just churn out random scenes and just kind of arrange them in an order that I think is going to work best and then just kind of adjust things as they go. I go back and adjust scenes and dialogue and stuff like that. So I do get lost a little bit, but that's mm. kind of part of the fun in writing. So yeah. So you say you use Scrivener. Yes, I do. I usually don't get any information about, like, except for recently, somebody told me they used the uh, Snowflake method. But as far as, like, concrete methods of outlining and stuff like that, I know what Scrivener is, kind of. Can it be used for outlining? Yeah, totally. So Scrivener is basically like Photoshop, but for writing. Okay. So there's so many elements to it that you can use, but you only are probably going to use about 10% of them based on how you write yourself. Mm -hmm. So like for me, I used to just write scenes in a Word document and then I'd have to copy paste them where they kind of needed to go in the document. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Scrivener, it's like every little scene that you write, you can put as a new like little tab or whatever. And then you can kind of rearrange those in your draft as you go. You can organize them within chapters and stuff like that. So that's kind of how I use it. Okay. Gotcha. And you can either write on the index card, which is kind of like the little subject thing, uh, like a, a summary, uh -huh. and then write the actual scene in the actual like document. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll see you are organized. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. Chaotically, yes. <laughs> Well, in your story, The Lantern, you tell of a female serial killer that kills male tourists. She enlists the help of and eventually controls a security guard that has the appearance of being strong and powerful because of the strength that the uniform, I guess the authority that the uniform conveys, as well as he has just a naturally large build, but he's actually very timid. What were these conflicting traits meant to represent in the story? So the lantern is actually based off of like a real life female serial killer, Joanna Dennehy. Like I'm a huge true crime person. So that's <laughs> so, one of the true so crime stories. So my fiance. <laughs> <laughs> So it was based in the UK, Joanna Dennis, she's like, it, so all this stuff happened in the UK. And she ended up enlisting the help of like multiple dudes. But the main guy that she was kind of with was like, a, again, a big kind of guy that was intimidating physically. But I think inside he was just kind of sad and lonely, too. So I think like that was originally where that concept came from. The uniform description wasn't something I really thought about at the time. So it's kind of interesting to see how it's pulled out just because it's like a beige, you know, it's your standard like parks uniform, which is just kind of like it's not a very intimidating uniform. So yeah. kind of like juxtaposed in this story. I love that kind of stuff like writer magic when readers pull out things that make you seem smart. But I'm just <laughs> like, no, it's just literally a beige outfit. Like, right? <laughs> he didn't even have a gun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well... So what was the name of the serial killer again? Joanna Dennehy. Joanna Dennehy. 
And so I imagine what they got up to was pretty crazy. But when you're writing a story based on a real event like that, how do you apply this literary panache, for lack of a better word, like when you're processing it through your mind, Mm -hmm. what's going through your mind when you generate these surreal, like I'm trying to remember some of the stuff she does, like she stabs him to keep him in line, not obviously Mm -hmm. all the way up to the hilt or anything, but gives him these warnings. Like, I mean, what's going on when you come up with these aspects or was that something she really did? (laughs) I don't think she did. I mean, like she cut herself a lot. She's a weird chick. So like when it comes to like fictionalized versions of like real things, like I don't like dramatized true crime. I just think it's kind of gross. Like the whole Jeffrey Dahmer show. Um, (laughs) I didn't end up watching that. Just like I just... I know that Joyce Carol Oates did a fictionalized version of the Dahmer killings. And I read that book when I was a teenager and I did like it. So I kind of, that's the whole thing about true crime is you don't want to sensationalize the crime, but Mm. you do get interested in the reason why people do things and the characters. And so at least for me as a writer, I do prefer to explore those subjects with fictional characters. Mm. So the Joanna Dennehy story I set in Yuklulit in British Columbia. Mm. I honeymooned there. So that was just one of those. (laughs) It's beautiful there. And so I just, I always wanted to set a story in that world. And I tried numerous times and just didn't have the right story. And so the lantern just ended up being that perfect story. So it was just taking the original setting in the UK and just Mm. setting it in Canada instead. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, your story, A Lesson in Sophistication, was a story of an older man named Mason that was a teacher that was a little, I guess, codependent and exercised it in a fatherly form on a student named Harmony. So was Mason after Harmony sexually, like in kind of a Lolita-esque fashion? And if not, what illusion was he chasing after? I do see him as a predator myself. The whole subject of just kind of like sexual predators, at least the grooming kind anyway, is just like, it's kind of fascinating to me. Like it's gross, but just the psychology behind it is fascinating because, you know, a lot of these people are just insecure people and they just, I feel like they're emotionally stunted and just don't know how to like have relationships with adults. Mm -hmm. And so in that story, I was just trying to explore like, a man who teaches at a private school in New York. So you're supposed to have this sort of sophistication and way about you, but the other teachers at the school don't respect him Mm. and he doesn't connect with them just because he didn't have that like upper class New York upbringing himself. So like he sees the innocence in her. I still think he's like a gross predator and stuff like that because he's a grown man. Right. So like, It was just a way of just exploring, again, that mindset. Because, like, true crime-wise, it's just gross to think about sexual predators at all or to sympathize with them. Because at the end of the day, you just can't, right? Yeah. So. So it wasn't an unconscious progression. It was a conscious act of grooming her? It might have been somewhat unconscious. Like, that's the thing. You just... You don't really know. And I think it's one of those things where somebody reads into stuff the wrong way. Mm. Like his reading of the situation is different from hers, right? Yeah. All right. Well, 
your story, Honeymoon, tells of a young girl named Darlene that ends up in an oppressive marriage, almost seemingly waking up on her honeymoon and realizing that she had become the young trophy wife of an older man. Is that the case? And if so, were the multiple scenes of Darlene being put on display meant to illustrate that she was an object for show? And if not, what did those scenes represent? So basically, Honeymoon was just this like weird, demented story that just Mm -hmm. came together. It took the longest time to write for the collection. And it's the core story of the collection. Like it's the cover. And it's just kind of an exploration of gothic fiction in general. Mm. And so a lot of those scenes where she's kind of put on display, like I was trying to mimic those covers and stuff of the woman in the lingerie or the wispy nightgown and all that kind of stuff. Just it's both like a fantasy and something that women, at least in terms of, you know, the gothic romance and stuff, it's something that you're supposed to want. Even though, like, running away from a castle, like, it's a fantasy scenario, even though running away from a castle in the rain and the dark, like, is not anything that anybody would really want, mm-hmm. you know? So it's kind of just a juxtaposition of both, because in those scenes where she's on display and stuff, like, she's sexualized, but she's supposed to feel pretty, and it's supposed to be, like, this very vivid sort of portrayal of a woman like a damsel Mm. but modernized in a very kind of like 60s 70s like that's when that whole like over sexualization of women on covers and pictures and stuff like that was like really prominent Mm. so it's kind of a blend of both those things what do they call that pinup girls yeah Yeah. like the 50s pinup girls and then i guess it just evolved from there hence the nod to old school polaroids yeah yeah Was there any kind of metaphorical meaning behind that, the way that, you know, the the scene was captured and then there was a few times where she slowly watched the image materialize as it developed? Not really, no. It was just kind of like having fun with description of things. Mm -hmm. And it's also like her as the character seeing herself out like from a different lens, a different portrayal of how he sees her, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, the next story... The Walking Hours, this is my favorite all the way around, including the title's clever play on words. (laughs) So because of the violence towards children in the story, I was curious to know whether you had written it before or after you had children and whether you think that that would affect you one way or the other. I wrote it after having kids. I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. Had they made you mad? It didn't. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Go to your room. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I don't know. Like, I feel like the violence in there is relatively vague. Mm. It's not too much of an issue to me to read about kind of like violence against children too much. It just depends on how the story is focused. So if it's really from the kid's POV, it's tough. If it's from the mother's POV, that's even harder for me to deal with. Mm. There's like a lot of scenes from The Handmaid's Tale. Like I had to stop watching that show, just the way that it kind of portrayed that sort of stuff. Mm. But if it's just kind of a vague, like this is what happened, like I can handle a lot of that. It Mm. doesn't really affect me so much. And I just, in terms of the time period, I feel like the kid violence kind of was a necessary plot point to that Mm. story to make it really effective. Because again, they're like, husband just came home from the war. Mm. It was the 1950s. So everything was kind of like kickstarting back up again in like a very rapid way. And so it's a couple in the suburbs, you move to the suburbs, you have kids, that's kind of the normal route for things. But in the walking hours, that's not how it goes. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I had a uh, Paula D. Ash on the show and kind of got into that same subject matter. And she was talking about people she knew that just couldn't stomach that after they had children. And she was like, after I had children, all of a sudden I had way more to be scared of. So I had way more to write about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in your story, The Fruits of Wartime, we see a woman named Jack. Is it Jacqueline or Jacqueline? I just say Jacqueline. Jacqueline. Okay. Um, yeah. I always butcher that name. Jacqueline <laughs> attempting to live free being a suffragette, but is figuratively and literally shoved into what post-Victorian society still held on to as the standard for how a woman should behave and live. At one point in the story... Matthew is scolding Jacqueline about her aspirations and talking about the flapper girls and the speakeasies. And I knew what the speakeasies were during Prohibition, but I didn't know a lot about the flapper girls. But from the little I read, they sound pretty interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about the subculture of the flapper girl? Um, I kind of know a base amount. So I did just like a wee bit of research. And I love the HBO show Boardwalk Empire mm. that aired several years back. So that takes place in the 1920s. So a lot of my kind of, I guess, research from it comes a little bit from that. I did do actual research, but I just I loved the whole vibe of Boardwalk Empire and just that kind of like, honestly, like, I feel like flappers are the earliest party girls. And so <laughs> in that era, it's like they weren't wearing corsets. They were wearing these really loose, um, boxy fit dresses. And so it just must have felt so free for young women in that time to just kind of like have this point in their lives where you could just have fun and party and explore yourself and your sexuality and all these things that women before them didn't really have. Because once you grew up, you just got married and you had kids and that was it. Yeah. So I just, again, the fashion and the music and just the whole idea, potential of like going out and exploring at night and just having a little bit of power, I think is something that to me is really cool and appealing to think about. I mean, who knows if they really were like dirty party girls, the way that they kind of portray <laughs> them in Boardwalk Empire and on other shows, but mm. it's just a, kind of a cool thing to fantasize about. Yeah, I know about the boxy dresses, the hats, the Bob hairstyles, I think. Mm -hmm. Did they burn the bra? <laughs> I don't like they still had like a kind of chemise, like camisole kind of oh, thing okay. that you wore underneath. Yeah, it was like kind of like a mini tank top kind of thing. Yeah. I didn't realize corsets were a thing back that recent, I guess. I mean, like, I, yeah, I, know I, the, think... I know the 20s was a long time ago, but whenever I think corset, I think like 1800s. But yeah, like I think even in the Edwardian era, like they weren't as strict and as crazy. I don't think corsets at all were ever like this like crazy constricting things. They're basically just kind of to support your back and all that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. Like they're still hard to walk in and whatnot, but they weren't like a torture device is my understanding. Yeah, I know. Do you follow Dita Von Tees at all? Yeah. Have you seen the pictures of her? What do they call that? Were binding, right? Yeah. She's actually got her waist in... God, I don't even know what the circumference is from, I guess it's called binding. It's kind of like a, it's almost like a, an illusion a little bit. Oh, is it? Um, for some of the courses. Yeah. Like some of them look pretty extreme and a lot of the pictures that they're drawn, like they're over-exaggerated, like even in illustrations of the way women are supposed to look in certain outfits are kind of like exaggerated. She swears they're real yeah. though. <laughs> Maybe hers are. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> she's, 
She swears, like, I even read her Wikipedia article that she spent, like, a long time. I forget how many years, but I don't know. Maybe it's the magic of yeah. Instagram or <laughs> whatever she's She makes to. a living off that. Like, yeah, that's her job does. is being yeah. a model. So I'm sure most women, like, back in the day just <laughs> had, like, it was because it was just to shape. It was like, it was old-timey shapewear, basically. Uh, yeah. Instead of the Spanx, you had your corset to put on so your dress looked nice and smooth and the yeah. shape was right, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was like instant hourglass figure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in your story, A Woman of the White Cottage, there's another story involving a woman being forced into her perceived place. But in this story, it's being done by gaslighting. Like it reminded me of how in Ireland, women that were considered too flirty or had children out of wedlock were sent to Magdalene laundries where they were treated as if they were mentally ill. So was this story inspired at all by Magdalene laundries? It wasn't. This is actually the first time I've heard of them. Uh, oh, but it's, I've got it's a movie for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to see it. Yeah. But yeah, it's sort of the same sentiment. Like it's a story about female hysteria. So, you know, a lot of the same kind of treatment happened to women at the time where you didn't fit the mold. And so they throw you in an insane asylum and assume that a lot of your issues in life were because of your uterus and, you know, it's kind of just exploring that and just in an extreme way. So it explores, you know, the female sexuality because a woman like starts having a relationship with a man and then it doesn't go her way because he's actually got, I wouldn't say nefarious interests because he's probably thinking he's helping her. Mm. But I think with the whole case of female hysteria, that was like a lot of the problem was not seeing women in a human way. It's just mm. like blaming her body for the way that she's acting. Mm. Yeah. So in your story, Little Black Death, the main theme I got from the story was a man marrying a woman merely as an instrument of procreation. And I would say that men doing that today is probably one of the many reasons the divorce rate is so high. What do you think makes a marriage successful? And what are your thoughts on the institution of marriage in general? I think like communication honestly like if you're going to get married you have to want the same things to start with so a lot of marriages can go awry there um, <laughs> if you're just looking for a fantasy or whatever or mm. trying to solve a problem but yeah i've been married for 12 years now so like it's communication and you know my marriage isn't without problems i don't think anybody's is i don't think there's any like perfect marriages without anything but I just think these days it's just kind of like a capitalist money grab or a, like a moralist thing, especially for a lot of, you know, people of faith. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know plenty of common law couples, too, who are, are, you know, just have as healthy a relationship as me and my husband do. So, yeah. you know, like uh, it's just it's all just so you can sport a ring and have a fancy wedding and make everybody look at you in a dress and you pay too much for a freaking cake. Like, I just, it's just it's just it's just. Nobody likes going to weddings. Like, it just, it's such a money grab, you yeah. know? Yeah. Oh, God, we're dealing with that stuff right now. It's, uh, oh, no. <laughs> oh, it's, I will love to be married, but the actual wedding process, luckily, most of the uh, attention is focused on the bride rather than the groom. Yeah. <laughs> but still, yeah. like, oh, God. It's be I know it's, I'm kind of like entering that part of my life where people are, are starting to get divorced. So, no, you know, God. it's kind of like, oh, hey, I don't have to go to a party for this. Like, 
you have to support your friends in different ways, but you know, yeah. at least you don't have to dress up for and waste a day of your life. <laughs> you know? It's I don't know how it is for you, but it's always the people you would never suspect. Is that for me? I, it's a bit of both bit for of me. Both? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But again, people will keep up appearances for as long as they can. So yeah. even though it always looks, they always make jokes like if you know your Facebook friends are starting to post the big family photo thing on facebook you know things aren't going well in the marriage like <laughs> i don't think that's all like when you do the big family photo shoot with the kids and everything oh like where you're all wearing yeah, the same you go, shirt or something yeah and yeah. you go out to like an orchard or some crap like that i don't think that's true for everybody but, <laughs> that's I so mean... sad if it is <laughs> <laughs> oh that would be so upsetting if that turned out to be true uh. <laughs> Well, finally, we have the story of In His Hands, the classic tragedy of witch trials. And from what I've read, the women that were accused of being witches were accused by men that they were not being subservient to, especially if they spurned their sexual advances. So it was, in a way, a method for the men to repent to God for being lustful and getting revenge on the woman in the process. Do you feel like there's any metaphorical modern day witch trials happening as we speak? I mean, there's plenty of examples, I think, now, like politically or, you know, in the public media kind of sphere. Mm -hmm. um, they're just kind of like cringe to talk about now, like yeah. people getting canceled and stuff like that. I wouldn't necessarily say that they're witch trials. It's just kind of one of those phrases that's just a little bit. Oh, yeah. Bit I, just, I mean, metaphorical. Now. Yeah. Like, yeah. For sure, there are. I'm very interested in the incel community and stuff like that. I love mm -hmm. listening to podcasts and things about men who fall into that pipeline of things. And, you know, I'll always see screen caps of Reddit posts or tweets or stuff like that from men who things don't go their way with women. And so they just start inventing reasons why women are the way that they are and stuff mm. like that when a lot of it is just it's a sociological thing in a lot of cases mm. the reason why men and women kind of have issues with relationships and stuff like that like i think we still like to blame each other for various things because mm. there's plenty of memes that women write about men like oh men will literally refinish an entire train or whatever <laughs> like rebuild an entire steam engine before <laughs> going to therapy and crap like that <laughs> It goes both ways, so. Yeah. Yeah, I think the whole incel thing is self-pity is like a warm-down comforter. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's sad because it's all online, which, like, having an online community is a good thing. But yeah. once you start kind of holding hands together down, like, the doom pit and mm. you're just walking and you're just, like, all terrified at the same time and making shit up about, you mm. know, women or the villains and, like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like there was a time where I went completely celibate. And when you do that, it's like, it's amazing the focus and energy you have. Like if these guys would just utilize that, they could be millionaires. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Like it's tough. And a lot of them, like I saw one recently, there was a bunch of men that got together and fixed like a whole steam engine or something like that. I don't have a problem with that. It's yeah. a bunch of men getting together and utilizing their passions and like getting together in person and mm -hmm. not having to rely on a tv and alcohol to talk about their problems or whatever it is start a fight things. club yeah like it just it's, just just don't talk about it because yeah the first exactly rule of fight club. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we still have to have this conversation and it's just kind of funny that 
a lot of these men are using these, you know, anti-heroes like Fight Club or Patrick Bateman. Mm. They don't really see like what <laughs> the actual, you know? Yeah. Well, I was under the assumption that one of your major writing influences was V.C. Andrews, but then I saw a mention of your like for, quote, hate-reading V.C. Andrews novels. <laughs> so I've never read her work, but I understand that after her death, her family used her name as a brand, and an author named Andrew Niederman began posthumously ghostwriting for her. So mm -hmm. were you speaking of hate reading the ghost written works or all of her work? All of it. I do really? actually love VC. I love VC Andrews. I have all her paperbacks on my bookshelf. Like I have a special VC Andrews shelf with my shoes and stuff. I started reading her in high school because at the time, all the other girls, like every second girl had a VC Andrews book that they were reading. Mm -hmm. And I remember finding a copy of Ruby, which was a Niederman written one. So it's a ghost written book. I read that series first. So basically, V.C. Andrews books are just kind of like a gothic family sagas. Mm -hmm. And it's always some, you know, sad, naive girl that just gets pulled through the ropes. There's always incest and <laughs> rape and like, you know, just the worst stuff in there. But it was so tropey. And I remember reading the entire Ruby series and loving it. And then I went back and read some of the other ones and quickly realized, like, it's just the same story but with a different girl in a different place or time period or whatever. And having read the actual original books written by V.C. Andrews herself, there was something about her that just, she understood like the teenage girl psyche. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say she was a great writer because her stories are a little bit convoluted and are kind of very train of thought and kind of go all over the place. Her writing is just a little bit chaotic and not refined, but... There's something about her characters that she kind of just kind of like cuts into you. And at least for me as a teenage girl and even as an adult woman, like I still resonate with it and I can indulge in the trash of it still. Okay, so so you hate read because it's a guilty pleasure? Oh, yeah, totally. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> I was like, well, like I, I still haven't heard the hate part. What's going on? <laughs> All right. Well, does Niederman like effectively ghostwrite? another person's literary voice? I would say he does. I know a lot of like the V.C. Andrews community, like they hate him and they hate all the books that he's written, but they still like read new books and everything. They just like to <laughs> trash him. Um, do they Niederman's hate actually, <laughs> I don't, They probably do. They but it's just when you, love, it. <laughs> when you love the brand of V.C. Andrews, like you're yeah. just gonna, you're gonna stick with it. I think he does a good job, but the heart, again, the characters, that thing that originally made V.C. Andrews like so great, like he mm. doesn't have it. The first couple of series that he did I think were good but then as time went on again it's just kind of like the same old tropes over and over they get boring and he can't really bring anything new to the table because all of those original tropes were part of the VC Andrews brand mm. and I mean he still gets paid to churn out new books so it's just kind of like you know there's not much he can do. I don't blame him for it. It's yeah. just the publishers they're just like let's just milk this for all let's we've got just you know. juice it till it's dry a couple of the recent books I've read, 
they're not like the new, new ones because they've kind of gone down the pipeline. When Twilight was popular, they had a couple of vampire-y ones. And then in the 2010s, when it was all like the thrillers, like the Gone Girl kind of thrillers, they tried to make him write V.C. Andrews ones like that. So it's sort of the same tropes, but in that genre. So he's like a cow that they've got hooked up to a milking machine. Just Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, (laughs) it's just so funny. I'm on like a V.C. Andrews Facebook group and all the fans just trash him on there i'm like i kind of i almost like feel bad for him but it's Uh, like i mean he's making money so i don't think he really cares (laughs) yeah so he's kind of tied into the original tropes so the brand is coke he's not making dr pepper he's making cherry coke is about his i mean he's just kind of like making different flavors of the same drink yeah, it's very diluted now, too, because, you know, as times have changed, you can't really write about the same, like, sensationalist kind of stuff anymore. It needs to be a little bit, I don't want to say dumbed down, but just, like, more wokey, quote unquote, just because you can't, like, can't put write that about sort incest? of stuff. Yeah, people would get, I don't know. I haven't, I don't think he's had incest in some of the recent V.C. Andrews books, but yeah, it's just, they've tried to make him write, um, characters of different ethnicities through the years stuff like that they get rid of a lot of the problematic sex with underage girls and things like that you know like Mm. (laughs) yeah i guess i haven't read vc andrews so i guess i could see them not wanting to have that in (laughs) of course we're talking about mainstream publishing we're talking about yeah simon and schuster penguin random house or something like that yeah. And a lot of the original VC Andrews readers, you know, like me, they're either like Gen X or like elder millennials like me. Mm. I don't really think they're getting any like new young readers, like teenage readers, mm. the same way that they did back in the 80s. So you're saying he should <laughs> he should bring in some incest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> bring the crazy stuff back. <laughs> yes. Need to get shirts made. Bring the crazy shit back. <laughs> <laughs> Well, is your writing influenced by artists of other art forms? And if so, who? Um, are you talking like movies or anything? Underwater basket weaving? <laughs> <laughs> Not really. I mean, like, again, I'm really into fashion and stuff like that. So like, I don't write about clothes too much in my books, but at least there's certain aesthetics and things like that, mm-hmm. that I really enjoy. I love watching video games, video game playthroughs and stuff like that. I find that the whole storytelling format of video games is kind of interesting too. And looking at, you know, the environments created for them and stuff like that, I find inspiring a lot. And I love urban exploration videos. So a few of the stories in Ending in Ashes were inspired by places in like urbex videos that people have on YouTube. Mm. Just the lore of the buildings themselves, or there'll be certain places in the buildings that they'll go through that I find inspiring, you know, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just read a. Do you read uh, Brianna Morgan at all? No. Yeah, she wrote a novella about uh, killer mermaids in an underground bunker just dis- <laughs> discovered by some urban exploration YouTubers. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Well, speaking of which, how wide or narrow is the spectrum of your reading with regard to genre? I mean, do you go as far as romance novels as far as splatterpunk or do you stay kind of in the comfy confines of uh gothic with a touch of transgressive 
Um, for the most part, yeah, I do read. Sometimes I like delving into like YA fiction, but there needs to be a little bit of like darkness to it. So mm. sort of transgressive or kind of like explore, especially like stories to do with like the dark female psyche and, you know, the deeper layers past the superficial stuff. I don't read too much romance just because it's too formulaic a genre for me. Like, I get the appeal of it, and I love diving into, like, the lore, like Colleen Hoover. I'm really, like, I'm always, what do women enjoy about these books? Like, I just don't, mm. it's the same thing over and over. But Colleen Hoover's basically just modern V.C. Andrews in my frame of mind. Um, <laughs> but uh, I do read some horror. I'm a little bit of a coward when it comes to horror, so I kind of need to know a little bit what I'm getting into. I prefer more, like, psychological horror kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Things about like human monsters, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Have you noticed there's some sort of subculture on social media that fetishizes borderline personality disorder? I mean, probably. Like, I grew up. <laughs> I love Girl Interrupted. It was one of my favorite books, and that's about borderline personality yeah, disorder. Is it? So okay. Oh, yeah, I think because there's this one girl that walks around with low cut tops and she has these gigantic scars on her chest from oh. obvious self mutilation. Yeah, like I, I don't know, I even as a teenager, like I kind of was sort of into that like obsession with like showing your damage on the outside, mm. you know, I never did. But, you know, it just I guess there's something where you just again, you just want to show your damage on the outside like you mm. want to listen to the nine inch nails downward spiral over yeah. and over and like i'm not just a nine inch nails fan i'm just really sad like, <laughs> i don't know it's just like exploring that side of your psyche like i've always been into it but once you're expressing it outwardly in a way like people don't know how to talk to you it's uh, uh probably time to get some help maybe i don't know yeah but there's definitely this weird obsession with it like i don't know how to describe it i've never like heard you know people on a podcast or anything talk about that so yeah, you know, like random stuff will pop up. I guess it's probably because I do subscribe to some of the darker stuff. Maybe it's like suggestions or something like that. But uh, I mean, I can relate the same way. Like in my early 20s, I considered myself a nihilist. <laughs> like, you know, the uh, the backwards N in Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, I yeah. Have, I have that tattooed on my chest. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I was 24, I had that tattooed on my chest. So yeah, I can I can see that. And like, I, I'm Gen X. So like the first uh, album I ever owned was Nevermind Nirvana. Mm -hmm. And you know, yeah. that's, that's the romantic, I can never say this word, the romanticization of self destruction, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah. So which, like, I mean, that's super goth. I think like, it's cool to talk about it. But mm -hmm. it's you got to do it. I guess, in a healthy, productive way. I think yeah. making art is a good thing mm -hmm. and writing about it and stuff because it is exploring those subjects and those feelings in a healthy way and in a way that resonates with other people and makes them feel more seen. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, does writing dark fiction, as kind of like you were just talking about, does it always give you catharsis or does it sometimes bring you down? And is there any particular subject matter that determines whether it's one or the other? I've always felt cathartic writing about the stuff that I write about. I've never really like felt down about it. 
again, like writing has always been a coping mechanism for me. And I was like such a shy, reclusive, like loser teenager. (laughs) I started writing in like the third grade and then wrote again. I went through my teenage years and wrote super angsty stuff. Just, you know, like every other writer that was a teenager. (laughs) So, yeah, it's always a cathartic thing. It gets it out. I got through my adult life, you know, my young adult life pretty okay. I never had any (laughs) problems or rough nights or severe regrets. And, you know, I had some rough adventures while writing. I wrote about different things through writing, even as an adult writing about, you know, my sister's divorce and and things like that that are just really hard to go through as a person. Like I always had writing to kind of lean on to at least explore it in a way that wasn't hurtful. So it's just channeling those emotions into something else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the reason I asked that question kind of ties into the next question and the acknowledgments. You think you're church friends mm-hmm. and you mentioned that although what you write might not be wholesome, that they supported you through the highs and lows regardless. So I guess when you say highs and lows, you're not talking about related to the writing, maybe something else? Yeah. Okay. So I grew up in a free Methodist church. It was just, you know, I don't know, I've had issues with my faith and not wanting to do it anymore and all that kind of stuff. Mm. I don't know. I've just never left the church entirely because I obviously got something out of my faith. And I think at least for a lot of Christians like me that grew up in a Christian community, but have issues with the way that they treat other communities, minorities or the LGBTQ plus community, stuff like that, their takes on abortion and everything. I'm a very progressive person. When I became an adult, I just got more and more progressive, but I still had connections to my faith. And even though I had problems with it, I thought Methodists were pretty progressive. Are they not? They're supposed to be, you know, my church is more older people, so it's just there's certain subjects that they shy away from or don't want to talk about. And sometimes I, you know, I got to keep my lips tight and just don't, (laughs) you know, like, I think most people know I'm progressive and write about edgy, subversive stuff because I I like to be upfront about who I am. Fortunately, the pastor at our church, like we have a little young adult group. And so those are the people who I think and I talk about my writing. It is a part of who I am and they do support things that I've achieved. And, you know, some of them have read it, my book, and I don't, either they don't say anything. I had somebody email me after my first book came out and said some nasty stuff. And I feel like it might've been a person at my church that I wasn't really that, like, I didn't have a relationship with that person, Mm -hmm. but they just, (laughs) they were so offended by the F word that was like there on the first page. Oh, that's what was killing them? Oh, okay. I don't, yeah, I, I mean, that's what I heard. So it's just kind of funny, like hearing stuff through the grapevine, but I don't know. I'm not one of those purest Christians. I think that edgy stories about real stuff are important. Mm -hmm. I remember as a teen trying to read some Christian books and just, it never got to the neat of specific issues. Like it kind of just grazes over them. Oh, here's this erotic dancer who comes to God and learns to not dance in the strip club anymore. Like it was just so stupid and just not, (laughs) it doesn't cut into like any human issues. It's basically just there for Christian moms to be like, Oh, good for her. She's not a whore anymore. Like, you know, (laughs) did you ever read that Christian horror author? I think his first breakout book was this ever present darkness or this present darkness. Forget his name. 
He's like a real squirrely guy. Like I don't. I remember there was one that my grandparents were talking about back in the day. They're like, oh, it's really scary. And I'm like, why would they have a horror book on their shelves? Because my, my grandparents were missionaries. I'm like, so maybe that was the dude. Well, I think but this I don't guy's remember. parents were missionaries. Um, oh, okay. God, maybe, I, wish, I don't know. <laughs> maybe. Oh, I'm not going to. I won't waste your time looking that up. But yeah. <laughs> like, hold, hold on, listeners at home. Well, I'm going to get to the bottom of this, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, so you said it's free Methodist. Yeah. Okay. Now, what does that mean exactly? I don't even, like there were the Methodists and then there were the free Methodists. There's a video that they always keep playing in our church as to what free Methodists are. Because oh, okay. I guess back in the day, you used to have to pay to get a pew at the church. <laughs> oh, like damn. to go. Like it was like a membership, like Costco membership shit. Uh, like, and then the free Methodists were like, no, everybody's allowed to come here. Outstanding. Even if you're poor, you can come and sit wherever you want. Like that was the whole thing, which I think is a positive message, but yeah, there's a little more ways to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've mentioned writing as a coping mechanism. What is the most difficult thing that you've encountered in your life that writing has helped you through, if it's not too personal? It's hard to say. Again, like I mentioned my sister's divorce. It was, I mean, it's a lot. Again, having grown up in a Christian environment, it was like, you got married and it's supposed to be the perfect thing. And, you mm. know, she married the wrong dude. And it was just kind of hard for me to process that at first. But, mm -hmm. you know, I wrote a few stories about divorced people and it just kind of like helps you see the perspective a little bit. The novel that I was querying for a while is about postpartum depression. And mm. so after I had my firstborn, I was never diagnosed, but it was definitely like rough. Like the whole newborn stage was rough. And sometimes even just seeing newborns, like it's just like it triggers me and I get brought back there. Mm. So my first novel was about kind of like a, a woman that goes through postpartum depression, but it's just kind of like, again, it's gothic and it's got some kind of supernatural stuff and it was also a thriller. So it was just kind of like exploring that. And after I'd written it, I definitely like, I feel like I got through a lot of like those hurdles and the guilt and stuff like that, that I felt mm. in those early days. Yeah. Okay. In that particular novel, you're still planning on publishing that? I don't know. Like, don't it's know. good. I mean, I wrote it five, six years ago now. Like, it was so long ago. It's still good. I loved some of the feedback I got. I had a couple almosts. Like, mm -hmm. so it's good. I just, again, I've lost the passion for it. So it's just kind of sitting in my computer. And I'm just waiting either for some new inspiration to revise it into something new that might be a little bit more relevant now. Or just to send it back out there and see what happens. But then I might not be proud of it. You know, mm. it's, it's like writer problems, right? Because yeah. <laughs> at the time I was convinced it was like going to be the next gone girl and it was going to be this huge thing. And, mm. you know, now I look back, I'm like, you're so foolish. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, Never make your like first big writing project. Like, don't put all your hopes and dreams on it. That's yeah. my advice to any newer <laughs> writers out there. Like, just write your first novel and don't think anything about it. <laughs> Don't assault people yeah. with your expectations. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything you avoid because you believe it stifles your creativity? Um, not really. Like writing subjects or just anything in general? Anything. Um, what did, uh, <laughs> probably the strangest answer I got for this <laughs> was uh, craft books, books on writing craft. 
They were, oh, okay. they were like, if I read anything that turns writing into a formula, it screws me up. So I know I should, but I just don't. <laughs> oh, see, I used to be that way because I'm more of a pantser than anything. Mm-hmm. Now, having written enough short stories for another collection in like a year, and then I'm working on another novel now, like I'm just kind of learning a little bit more about fast paced writing. And I feel like the craft books help me personally. Mm-hmm. I don't drink very much anymore. I used to drink heavily, mm-hmm. like a lot more than I probably should have back in the day. <laughs> just because it just, again, it was well, like, you were people gone, girl, like, oh. goddammit. <laughs> yeah. And people were, you know, just like, oh, you're a writer. So you write. And I used to drink gin and I just made it a part of my personality. It was just drinking gin all the time. And I drank yeah. way too much. And of course, you get drunk every night. You're not going to really be writing. I know some people love writing, but I just end up putting on like a 90s playlist and I'm like dancing to it alone in the living room. Like, I don't get any <laughs> writing done. <laughs> So, you know, not drinking. I have to go out and be with people because I'm an introvert. Like I can have a drink if I go out with friends and I'm actually being social. That's Uh, my treat. But yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's weird. Like uh, Cormac McCarthy said for a writer that drinking is a liability. Ronald Malfi told me and actually as soon as we were done with the interview he was going to engage in this he was he was uh half in the bag by the end of the interview because he was drinking scotch on the rocks he's like yep write drunk edit sober (laughs) yeah i just couldn't focus enough i would get too distracted yeah i don't know how he does it it's just it's different people different methods it's weird how that works yeah, I usually like I get high now. Like I'm in Canada, so you can just it's legal, oh, right? Um, uh, I would ruin my keyboard from all the grease from the potato chips. <laughs> <laughs> like I have my little like e-cigarette. And so I usually just have that now. And like because I used to just be so perfectionist about everything. Because again, minimalism, like I'm always just like this has to mean something or it has to be the right thing. And I'd be too mm. judgmental about everything I wrote. Whereas if I write high, I'm like, just put it on the page, you know, like it's there. <laughs> I'll fix it later. Like, so sometimes I'll just have like, you know, a whole screen just full of typos and just a bunch of random thoughts and stuff like that. And then the next day, like I'll organize it, you know, mm-hmm. again, it's the chaos. And then I organize it after. So I find it does help me be productive, but you know, I don't want to get too high because I'm eating spoonfuls of peanut butter, right? Like, it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, just one more. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have a writing medium and atmosphere? Like where I write? or uh, Yeah, what you write on and where you write, or is it just, you know, whatever you're feeling at the moment? My situation is currently very bad, so I sit at the dining room table and that's where I write. So it's kind of hard just because, like, you know, I've got a house full of kids' bedrooms and, you know, I can't... My kids are still kind of young, so I can't, like close them off downstairs and sit in an office alone or anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just write at night before bed. And I recognize now that if I turn more lights off in the house, so it's darker, I can focus a bit more. But yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like I read something about maybe it was in the acknowledgments about you sitting, I guess it was the dining room table with earplugs in. Yeah. Or maybe with earphones in, I guess. Yeah, I used to put headphones in. If the kids were around, I got to rip them out half the time and Mm. yell at them. So I don't really... (laughs) I got some of those calmer earplugs that you've probably seen them online. They actually help. They've helped. Oh, I'm not... My mom brain. Yeah, they're kind of like... familiar with They're like earplugs, but there's just like a little hole in them. So it kind of filters the sounds around you a little bit differently. Okay. I don't know. I found those helped just having to listen to the stupid YouTube videos and the kids yelling and all that crap. Like, it's easier to focus just on 
me and my yeah. work with them in. But regardless, I don't get much work done when the kids are awake. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, where's the strangest place you've ever gotten an idea for a short story? I, I haven't had too many stories. Like, I've never really, like, had any weird stories set in any weird places. I love going on road trips, though. I find, you know, a gas station or just some weird off-the-road place. I get, you know... I don't know why road trips are just inspiring to me. Half the time, oh, I don't even end up. I guess I should say I, I probably worded that wrong. <laughs> Not necessarily like a location, just like the strangest places. And um, I ran into somebody at the grocery store that was acting crazy or somebody showed up at my door or something broke, you know, something okay. like that. Yeah. I don't get too much from real life. I don't know why. I usually get inspired by, you know, news or true crime or just random things that I hear about. Like mm -hmm. anything that I've done in real life doesn't usually inspire me. But like I was saying, road trips, I don't know why they just usually spur something more it just sets my frame of mind in a different mm. place so i find myself more inspired or open to ideas and things like that yeah yeah you're i mean you're getting out of your like comfort zone comfort zone yeah yeah, like, yeah or just, the daily grind of things like just yeah yeah i can totally see that opening your mind up changing context perspective everything I think just being on the road, too, because your brain's not really stimulated by too much. So you're just like alone with your thoughts a bit more. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Now, is that with kids in the car? Uh, <laughs> before I had kids, I used to get like way more inspired. Now it's a little bit different. It's just knock, knock jokes over and over. But I still like <laughs> it's funny. The last time we went on a road trip, my daughter was just telling me how bored she was. I'm like, look out the friggin window, like <laughs> make up a story, like look at a spot in the woods or a weird house or something. Make up a story. And she's like, I am. I'm still bored. Like <laughs> She could be your collaborator. Get mommy an idea for a short story. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I mean, mostly it'll be like some dilapidated barn, and in my brain, I'm just like, how can I make a couple have sex there? Like, that's usually <laughs> where a lot of my stories <laughs> There's a hayloft with a rope you can swing from. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, how can I make a cool gothic sex story here? Like <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. We, uh, <laughs> my mom was uh, raised on a farm in Manitoba, not Kamloops. The farm is the coolest place to go to when I was a kid. There was yeah. a, a barn with a hayloft with a rope from the rafters. And there was two, oh, cool. two separate piles of hay. And there was like a gap in between. That's where you went to get to the, I don't know what you, the, the door that drops yeah. down that you climb down the ladder. Yeah. So yeah. we'd swing across <laughs> from one to the other. Oh, oh that, that sounds so, so fun. fun. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> farm life. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, what is... Besides, I think you said somebody said, fuck you. <laughs> what is uh <laughs> Or no, no, no. They were mad because you used the word fuck. That's what it was. Yeah. What is some of the most unusual feedback you've gotten from readers? Uh, like nothing too crazy. Most people have been pretty good. I kind of like reading bad reviews or at least, you know, like the two star realm because most of the people who will give like a two or a three star review have good feedback. So yeah. I remember there was one dude that was so upset with my first collection because I used the phrase flinching fingers a little too often. Right. <laughs> like just fingers flinching. Like oh, it was yeah. just a descriptive thing. I leaned on too much. Oh, okay. Um, 
Yeah. And then I have a review for Indian Ashes and the woman was saying that there was too much description of teeth or mouths or tastes of things. And I'm like, damn it, I just replaced flinching fingers with like mouth stuff. (laughs) But I mean, like, you know, writers are human and we have little clutch phrases and things and, you know, like... I'm not mad. (laughs) (laughs) Are these like like amateur editors that are trying to advertise their services? Like, hey, maybe, uh, (laughs) maybe I could. I mean, uh, they could be. Yeah. I feel like once you're at that point where you can recognize those sort of things, you'd probably make a pretty darn good editor. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What are you trying to tell me, (laughs) ma'am? Yeah. (laughs) Well, so. You have a large presence on social media. You're on Substack. You have a website and a blog. How much time do you spend marketing in contrast to actually creating? And what is the ratio of creating versus marketing that you feel you need to be a successful writer or successful as a writer? Honestly, I don't think that I have a lot of like knowledge to put out there. Most of my social media presence is just kind of like random stuff. And, you know, I've always wanted to have like a blog with lots of followers and, and all that kind of stuff. I wanted to do fashion blogging at one point, but I'm just too darn lazy to do it. So I'll take a 20 second TikTok video of me and my outfit at the end of the day and, and just do that. <laughs> it's not really book marketing, but I know that kind of like it's, it's a little bit of my brand and especially with Ending in Ashes because it is a retro gothic paperback. It leans heavily on, you know, that kind of the retro appeal and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of been fun to lean into that a little bit more. I'm still discovering how to market myself. I know that it's not really healthy for a writer to spend too much time marketing, especially, you know, the whole thing with Twitter and all that. So many writers put so much stock into their their Twitter profiles and trying to promote your work over and over and all that. But it's just, it's a lot to work on, especially because algorithms are always changing and the way that your stuff is put out there is always changing. I don't really think spending too much time like making sure you post two or three times a day about your book is really all that healthy. I'm not a planner. (laughs) It just takes the fun out of all of it. Yeah. So I just try to be my honest self on the internet and just try to put little tidbits of myself out there. Like whenever I have like five free minutes to just do it. But yeah, I don't spend too much time marketing myself, really. I don't think I do. I know mm-hmm. I have to because my first book I didn't. And this one, I'm just, again, I'm, I'm learning it as I go. So, Well, of course, when I'm looking up things in relation to writing or podcasting, that's what the powers that be, I guess, kind of tell you mm-hmm. is that you have to spend almost as much time marketing as you mm-hmm. do creating. But, you know, <laughs> who knows if that's correct or not? That's why I always like to ask people. Yeah, I feel like in some ways it's almost a necessary evil. Like you kind of have to. But again, it's Mm. just like, you know, you spend all this time and get 30,000 Twitter followers. And then Elon Musk buys it. And now it's just like a crapshoot. Like all your, yeah, it's X now, you know? So, and then the only people who are really engaging on that aren't really the people you want reading your books anyway. Like, you know, it's just what's the point? Well, have you found at least within the last couple of years, is there one in particular that you think is better than the others? I mean, I guess I'm not asking for an endorsement of a particular (laughs) social media, I guess, but I kind of am 
<laughs> um, like, I mean, I've heard book talk is apparently like huge. Like I have a TikTok profile, but again, I mostly use it just for like outfit photos, like occasionally I'll post a random thing. But, you know, again, I'm like a geriatric millennial here. Like I, <laughs> I, I enjoy If you're geriatric, <laughs> I'm half fucking dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, you're Gen X. That's the cool generation. Is it? Um, but Sweet. yeah, I mean, I always saw it that way as a kid. But, you know, <laughs> I like TikTok and find it very creative. But I just I don't have time to constantly make like videos and to spend the time editing the videos. It's a very labor intensive social media platform. Like if you wanted to do it well, mm. again, I'm a millennial, so I'm kind of an Instagram person. With the reels, it sort of functions the same way. So a lot of the time with social media, you're just kind of recycling content between all of the the social media platforms. Mm -hmm. And I loved Twitter. I don't really, I'm not on there too much anymore. I started a Threads profile, but again, it's just like the algorithm sucks and you can't even search on it. And, you know, so at least right now, Instagram is the easiest because I like doing flat lay pictures or it's just like taking a picture and writing something is a lot easier than filming a video and having to refilm the video because you didn't say it right or you misspoke or and then you have to edit after that so it's just at least for me instagram is at least the least labor intensive the easiest one mm. to use yeah okay. well tell me about your experience with quill and crow publishing you mentioned a woman named cassandra who loved your short stories and kept asking you for more i believe in the beginning of your mm -hmm. writing career and i think she's the one that wrote the forward to ending in ashes is that correct yeah, yeah she is yeah so she's the editor of the press um they're a newer press i think they were established in 2021 no 2020 so they specialize in gothic fiction and i wrote woman of the white cottage for their first anthology call which is called anomalies and curiosities about uh gothic medical horror and so again that's what inspired the first story i just wrote it out and just enjoyed that process after that, she asked me to write another story for their next anthology. I've been requested to write stories for the magazine. And it's just kind of like just a growing, fun press that's got like a pretty engaged community around it. And I've really enjoyed my time like working on my book with them. I got to have a part in doing the cover. Uh, the editing was great. Just the whole process of getting the book together was great. And I've just, again, I've really enjoyed the community behind Quill and Crow it's, a, again, a new small press, but I've really enjoyed my experience there. It's just been very positive and just fun and outgoing. And normally I'm very subversive and have to take myself so seriously all the time. So it's just kind of <laughs> nice. Just, you know, the weird goth, like kind of cheesy, like I love Halloween. Halloween's everything <laughs> kind of people. I love Halloween. And so like, it's just like to indulge in that just a little more in the fun way. Like it's been great. And I really love the press and everybody there has been supportive and great and just promoting the book and yeah awesome all right the time has come i believe you nailed at least one marketing technique the outfits <laughs> that you put together and model in front of the bookshelf that is what caught my eye when i was scrolling yeah. through and i was like what, what is it what's going on here who is this because i came across one and i was like oh that's interesting and then i came across another and i was like wow she's got a lot of these and then i saw you were an author so oh, awesome. <laughs> tell me about this uh, setup you have going here. 
Uh, yeah. So I like, I love fashion. Like I kind of always have, it wasn't until after I had a kid and I'm like, I'm not just going to be a mom. Like I'm Mm. just not. And so (laughs) I, I started taking pictures of my outfits and stuff like that after I had my first kid. Cause again, like I mentioned, I always wanted to be a fashion blogger, but I'm too lazy and self-conscious to like actually go out and take pictures of myself in public where people can see me. Mm. It's just, it's just awkward. Like seeing people (laughs) take pictures. It's so awkward. So I just do it at home. Yeah. And like they are outfits i do wear them in public i used to just do it for instagram but then with tiktok i'm like hey i can just do a quick video it's easy put some music over it Uh so again it's a bit lazy but it's fun and the bookshelf was my only nice background in my house so that was that was what i leaned to which kind of works because i never really know how to promote the fact that i'm kind of like a bookish person um no so better just way having than that. the bookshelf yeah. there. Yeah. And then I got the bookshelf that I have now. I had a different bookshelf that was just like an old crappy furniture one back in the day. And then I got my dad's old bookshelf in the 70s. And it just, it looks so good and streamlined <laughs> and like minimalist and organizing the colors helps too. So yeah, yeah. it's just like... It's cool when it's like fashion people find out that I have a book and like I've had a couple of them actually buy it. So, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that getting into fashion and trying to make up cool outfits is like a great way to market your book. But I mean, for me, it works because I I love clothes. Yeah, Yeah, I think it's a pretty solid technique. (laughs) And I mean, you technically are a fashion blogger, are you not? I guess a little bit, but again, I just, I feel like fashion bloggers are just like cooler and get like, you know, brand deals and stuff like that. Like those are obviously the big name ones, but again, it's just, I just, I take a 20 second video at the end of my day and that's the extent of it. Like, I don't have time to take like get ready with me pictures or me trying to put an outfit together. I wish I could. I wish I had the time because I feel like it'd be fun, but Uh I just don't have that kind of time. Yeah. I think my favorite was cocaine chic. (laughs) (laughs) Which one is or that? At least, oh. at least that's what you called it. I mean, <laughs> oh, it was like, was it like the Miami Vice one? I don't remember. You had some like <laughs> some lime green eyeshadow on, or something like that, or maybe it was oh, a lime okay. green shirt with some pink eyeshadow. I don't know. I wasn't implying that you do cocaine. That's what you called it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like it's just like random. I'm like, oh yeah, this one looks like you know, like it's like a Heather's inspired look. So there's like plaid yeah. to it or something. Yeah. But again, it's just a fun way to like explore things or. I remember once I dressed up kind of gothic and had this belt and some guy asked me, he's like, oh, are you cosplaying as somebody? And I'm like, no, it's just an outfit. Like, (laughs) Well, what is the life of Rebecca Jones Howe like outside of writing? We know you have kids. uh, (laughs) Do you read bedtime stories? Do you write bedtime stories? I do not. Mm. I don't really have any interest in writing kids stuff. It's, I mean, I just have like the... Twisted kids stuff? (laughs) (laughs) I wish. My kids are kind of scaredy cats. I would love to Uh. read them, you know, like scary stories to tell in the dark or like some Goosebumps books and stuff, but they're just not there yet. Like, yeah, my daughter's eight and then I have a son who's four. So just kind of at that bridge before they're like in school and I feel a little bit more free, but I do work part time. Mm -hmm. I just work retail. That's all I've ever done as an adult. And I don't mind it. It's an okay career. I love doing displays, like visual merchandising is kind of like my little like crux in retail. So it's not as sad. I get to be creative there. But yeah, it's just I do mom life. I do the retail slavery. And then I come home and write when my kids finally go to bed. So a little bit boring, but (laughs) Mm. sounds perfect. 
Do you, <laughs> <laughs> do you have and final question? Mm-hmm. Do you have any hacks for writers that are extremely busy and have a hard time finding not only the time but the place to write? I mean, this is all stuff I've discovered recently. Notes app. Use your notes app. Churn everything in there. It's okay if it's got typos. Embrace all the typos and all the random stuff. (laughs) It doesn't have to be perfect. I feel like if you're inspired enough, you'll be inspired enough to fix the crap that you wrote before. (laughs) And then just like, even if you don't have an office, like I don't, just put some headphones in or something. Turn some lights out. Have some tea. I always try to have tea at the end of the night to help me wind down. Yeah. And then just read a lot too. Like give yourself time. Like you shouldn't feel bad about Netflix binge, but at least watch stuff that inspires you. Mm-hmm. I don't like to sink too much time into, you know, reality TV or stuff that's just like too mind numbing. I really try to be a little bit more I want stuff that's more insightful. So I I seek out stuff that will at least stimulate my brain to like, you know, be inspired or challenged or something like that. I don't like to numb myself too much. All right. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rebecca, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Not really. So I do have my website, RebeccaJonesHow.com. And then pretty much on every social media site, I'm at Rebecca Jones How. Um, I do have a Substack as well. That's Rebecca Jones How. So, yeah. All right. Sounds good. Listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Rebecca, thank you again for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a writer that has transformed personal demons into a horrific yet cathartic narrative. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. You've got nothing left to But face what's in front of you Loud as thunder Clear as water Look at what's in front of you
feels like it is the first time being